Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One day in late August, when her daughter Chloe was 13, my next guest, Antonna, got a call from the school sick bay. They asked her to pick Chloe up because she was pale and weak. No one knew she had in fact stopped eating. And here starts a harrowing true story of Chloe and her family's battle with anorexia, which Anne has written about in her Finch Memorial Award-winning book, Cold Vein. Cold Vein is Anne's family's name for the disease. By the age of 16, Chloe weighed that of someone half her age. The book tells of a journey from Melbourne to Stockholm in Sweden for treatment, of near death from malnutrition and eventual recovery, which, Anne says, is an offering of hope to other families who are going through the same ordeal. Anne is a mother of four and a human rights lawyer. I began by asking her how much she understood about anorexia back then. I understood very little about it then. I, I'd had something similar myself as a, you know, a young teenager, where I'd gone through a period of of not eating, losing quite a lot of weight, but, but somehow I'd managed to get back on track pretty quickly, so I'd never been as sick as, as Chloe had been. Um, but I did, I did understand that she was in a very dark place and that we needed to get some, some proper treatment so that she could get better. I knew that it was much more than a diet uh, and that she needed to get some serious help. People can still find this hard to understand, don't they? That they assume that you can get someone, particularly perhaps if it's your child, to eat. Yes, and that was uh, one of the the problems that we faced. People just didn't understand why it wasn't possible for us just to to get her to eat. It's incredibly difficult to get someone to eat. I mean, you can you can sit with them and persevere with the message that they have to eat something. But obviously you can't force feed them. And with a teenager, it can be extremely difficult. There can be a lot of tension and conflict. Before we get to know Chloe when she was anorexic, what was she like before that as a, as a kid? Um, yeah, look, I, in the book I talk about when she was a preschooler and the, the sort of drawings that she would do at preschool. And they were always of these huge, amazing rainbows that would take up every square inch of the page and almost seem to sort of burst out of the page. So she was an incredibly happy kid. She was always really open and affectionate. She was a funny sort of kid. She she could make people laugh. She was always sort of play acting. And I remember there was a day we were in the local bank um, just standing in the queue and she started doing a really funny dance and uh, had everyone in the bank sort of cracking up and laughing and um, people walking past on the street were looking at her too. So she was a bit of a character and always a very happy, um, sociable kid. She always had lots of friends. Um probably a little bit of a perfectionist. She always tried to do everything really well, but she'd certainly never been a kid that was, you know, unwell or um, overly anxious or, or insecure. So amidst all that joy within her, do you have any idea, and does she have any idea, what triggered her anorexia? Um, in the years since, she's said to us that 
when she was in year six, uh, there was a bit of bullying going on um, and that a boy had had told her that she was fat and had sort of made fun of her. And she thinks that that was the thing that perhaps triggered her becoming interested in diets, um, not wanting to be overweight, wanting to, you know, to lose weight, um, becoming a little bit self-conscious about her body. But having said that, I think that the causes of anorexia are not really all that well understood and that there are, you know, many factors that can result in someone becoming anorexic. So I guess, you know, that sort of remark could be made to someone else and, and they wouldn't become anorexic. But um, with Chloe, perhaps there was a bit of a genetic predisposition there, um, the perfectionistic streak, um, perhaps other things going on. We just don't know, really. Um, but I think if we're looking at a trigger, perhaps that was the only one that I can think of. What were the red flags for you that something was wrong? Because let's be honest, an awful lot of 13-year-old girls, that's when they are thinking about diets and things like that. They can get a little bit fussy, a little bit quiet. But but were there red flags for you looking back? Yeah, oddly enough, um, the red flags, I think, first started to happen when we were on a holiday in, in New Zealand. Um, we'd gone over there in the middle of winter for a, a conference that my husband was, was speaking at. And we, we went there with the kids. We took all of the kids as well. And I just remember things um, that were odd. So, for example, we went tobogganing at, at Coronet, Coronet Peak. Um, and we all sat in the uh, cafe afterwards having hot chocolates. But she normally loved hot chocolate but refused to have any because she said it was too hot and that it burned her mouth. Um, and I noticed, I think, on that holiday that every meal seemed to be a bit of an issue. So there was always something wrong in her mind with, with what we'd been served up. And she'd always choose to have salad instead and, and not very much of that. And I think also looking at the photographs now of, of that holiday, I can see that she she just looked at a really bad colour. She didn't, you know, didn't have much colour in her face. Um, and that her clothes were starting to to really look quite loose and, and floppy. And I guess at the time I thought, well, she's a teenager, she's growing, um, and she, her body is perhaps going through a bit of a growth spurt. Um, but now I think that they were the red flags. She wasn't herself. And it wasn't long afterwards when we got back to Sydney that I'd start getting phone calls from the school to say that she was in the, the sick bay and I'd have to come and pick her up. Um, and not long after that, um, she was so sick she couldn't get up and then had to go to hospital. Has she talked about how she saw herself during this period? She, um, at the time, she couldn't accept that she was really underweight and she would still refer to herself as being fat, uh, even though she was extremely extremely thin and underweight, she couldn't see that. She had a very disordered um, body image. Um, in the years that have um, passed uh, since then, I think that she probably doesn't remember a lot of that time, doesn't remember um, what she looked like or how she thought she looked. She certainly doesn't speak about it much anyway. And at the time, did she withdraw 
from you because this seems to be a veil of secrecy around this. She wasn't talking to you very openly, was she, about dancing? No, no, not at all. And I think that's a characteristic of the disease, that there's a lot of subterfuge going on. In her case, there was a lot of food, hiding of food. There was a lot of um, secret exercise. So she tended to become really withdrawn, I think, because she was hiding those things from us and because she was just in a really dark and miserable place. And the school, as you say, they had noticed her health, but had they also noticed any changes in her behaviour at school? Not really. She'd only just started at the school. So it was that um, we have year seven as the first year of high school here and and it's a difficult year. Um, usually the students are coming from smaller schools to a much larger school and they have to, you know, negotiate new friendship groups and um, a much bigger, bigger school. Um, she was having a few problems settling in. We were a little bit concerned that she didn't seem to have made any any strong friendships and that she did seem very withdrawn. One of the things we did notice that was that her voice, which was normally very loud and clear and happy, had become little more than a whisper. Um, so I think she was withdrawing into herself and that obviously affected making friendships and you know, participating in school life. We'd had a few talks to the teachers at the school to try and work out what was going on and to try and help her with that transition to high school. But I guess we hadn't really picked up that what was actually going on was an eating disorder. You are a professional woman, smart woman. You, you can identify um, problems. How did you deal with this when it was your daughter so changed, so withdrawn and clearly needing help? Was there was this support for you when you realised that there was an issue here? Um, I, I mean, I, I found it really confusing because I was used to problems having solutions. Um, I was used to being able to reason things and 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 find a you know a solution to something through a logical process. It's very much part of being a lawyer. Um, but with with anorexia there didn't seem to be a logical pathway to recovery. So there'd be a couple of steps forward but then a massive step back. And it was very hard to understand how this child that had always been so so honest and transparent um, was doing all of these things to sort of beat the system and engage in subterfuge and had undergone almost a complete personality change. So for me, it was like, um, you know, being someone who was very used to rules and logic, um, just having a rug pulled from under my feet every day, sometimes several times a day. I just really couldn't understand what was going on. Chloe ended up in Children's Hospital and that's where she was diagnosed as anorexic. I suspect by then you'd come to that decision yourself? I had a fair idea that 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 was what was going on and it was a relief to actually get the diagnosis. Um, I think I I realised she was anorexic when she wouldn't even drink water at home. I, I realised that this was, you know, something really weird and something um, something that needed serious help. How did she react to being at the hospital? Because, as you say, this is all a, she'd been able to control things until then under this veil of secrecy. But being in hospital, you you were fronting up 
to her condition. How about Chloe? Um, I think her biggest fear about being admitted to the hospital was that she would be made to eat. And and that was what I remember as we were driving out to the hospital on the day that, that I knew she'd be admitted, but, but she didn't know. And I told her that, or she saw her suitcase on the back seat and said, well, why have you got that? And I said, well, um, you'll probably have to stay at the hospital. And she started to cry. And I said, oh, don't worry, we'll we'll come and visit you and you won't be too alone. And um, she said, that's not why I'm upset. And I said, well, why are you upset? And she said, because if I go to hospital, they'll make me eat. And that was her biggest, her biggest fear of um, having to eat food in the hospital. And at the same time, I think just for a moment, if we can move our attention to your other children. You had three other children at the, uh, then and um, you had your husband Ray as well. So this must have had yeah. a big effect on the family. And sometimes I think perhaps the siblings are forgotten in this when one child needs so much attention. Exactly. Um, and the kids uh, really were very adamant that I write this book um, because they wanted the story of siblings told. There are a couple of times I gave up on the writing of the book and didn't want to take it any further. But uh, but all of the kids said, no, it's really important. There was nothing like this for us and we want other other kids in our situation to, you know, to not feel so alone. So I think for them it was a very confusing time. Um, they'd always been extremely close to Chloe and she just... It was like a, a light had gone out. She she literally disappeared under this illness, and so the you know the great childhood friend that they'd had, this wonderful older sister or younger sister, just wasn't there anymore. So it was extremely sad for them. And um, the oldest, my oldest child, Ryan, um, has in the years that have passed. Uh, thought about what happened and he, he wrote a, a poem, a really moving poem and he's given me permission to just quote a, a line from it but the line is um, when would you come back and grow up with me again um, that was what he wrote about the feeling of, of losing his sister during those years that uh, he'd lost this wonderful childhood companion um, and he felt very you know, very alone, I think all of the kids did during that time Alice used to leave little notes around the house for Chloe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was really hard to connect with Chloe on a day-to-day -day basis because so much of what was going on was, was arguments and fights about food. But then by leaving these little notes around the house saying, Chloe, I love you, you're beautiful, don't let this illness you know, destroy you, um, she was just trying to reconnect with the sister that she knew was still there. And we Jack felt that his oh, sister yeah. had been possessed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jack, um, he always saw the disease as a demon that sort of sat on her shoulder and took over her mouth and um, made her say and do things that, that she would never do otherwise. And and when she, um, she went into treatment in Sweden, he wrote this um, incredible uh, like little letter, um, which was enormously comforting to me because it, it gave me hope that that she would come back to us one day and um, I might just read it, it's, it's just really short but he said, to my angel Chloe, 
although I'm not saying goodbye to the Chloe I know, the amazing, beautiful Chloe I knew so many years ago can hear me as I say, I love you and I'm sorry I wasn't always supportive and I blamed you when it, it hurt you and took over your mouth. But I do know that when you come back, you'll be there. My beautiful Chloe, I love so dearly and I know I'll say hello to the Chloe I know. And she she kept that um, on the wall above her bed in the hospital. Oh, and you've got four remarkable children there. Thank you. Because it could well have gone the other way. There can be in these situations resentment and frustration. And the conversations you must have had to have with your other three children to explain to them what was happening to Chloe and perhaps also concerns that even one of them might have copycatted. Yeah, it was particularly difficult with two younger siblings. So when this first happened, I think Jack was only about seven and Alice was about ten. Um, but then later on, it was still difficult because they were then becoming teenagers themselves and, and actually you know, did need a lot of our attention as well. Um, I think uh, Ryan was doing the HSC, the high school certificate, which is our final, you know, school exam um, in the year that, that Chloe was in Sweden. But all of the kids said to me that it was actually better to have the eating disorder out of the house, that they felt that they could settle down and they felt they were getting more attention from people who were looking after them, even though, you know, obviously I had to spend quite a bit of time away from them. But to have the eating disorder removed and being treated in a different place um, was actually really good for them in the end. Ray has said that this nearly cost you your marriage. Yeah, we had very different approaches to the um, to the eating disorder. So I took on a very ferocious warrior woman sort of approach, determined to sort of eradicate it and fight it bare-fisted in the trenches. And Ray was much more gentle, much more conciliatory, much more prepared to do deals with the illness and um, that led to enormous conflict between us and I think for a lot of the time too that we were very frightened um, and we felt that things were very out of control and, and that sort of, you know, those emotions lead to a lot of conflict. Now to add to all this you found out that Chloe was self-harming and I, I think in fact there was also at least one suicide attempt. Yeah, that was incredibly scary and um, not something that we'd really been warned about at the time. But, you know, I'm horrified now um, when I read about that anorexia to see that the um, the risk of suicide um, is actually very high. And 20% of anorexia nervosa deaths actually result from suicide. And it was incredibly um, frightening um, for me as a mother to to think that, you know, this, this could take her away from us. And I became extremely hypervigilant and um, watchful and, um, and quite traumatised myself. At the same time, over around about three years, Anne, I think you were trying different treatments and approaches. When you think back, uh, I mean, how, how many different treatments did you did you try because there's lots of different advice on this 
Yeah, we, we pretty much tried everything we could. The the main thing we tried was the um, family-based therapy, which focuses on refeeding the sufferer in the home environment. And we had some success with that the first time she was sick, when she was only 13. But when she relapsed um, at the age of 16, it was much more difficult. We also tried... Um, uh, sessions with psychologists. We had a we had a dietitian. We took her to a psychiatrist once. Um, we we really tried to do whatever we could. And I think you know at one stage she was actually um, she was on antidepressants. And I think someone also suggested antipsychotics. And I just thought we really. Despite all the different things we tried, there was really no sign that she was getting well or improving at all. I'm talking to Anne Turner, author of Cold Vein, and three years into through these three years of hell, really for all of you, you uh, found yourself on a plane going to Stockholm. That's when right. and how did you hear about the the method on offer over there? Um, I think it was just quite by chance. I I had a um, uh, a friend who was also someone who was teaching Jack reading because Jack had always had problems with um, dyslexia. And and she just happened to mention that a friend of hers had taken her daughter to this program in Sweden and had a very good outcome. So from there, I think I spoke to the friend. Um, I spoke to the, the clinic in Melbourne, the outpatient clinic in Melbourne, um, and then had Chloe assessed to see if she was suitable for inpatient treatment at the clinic in Stockholm. And it all sort of escalated from there. Can you explain how the method works? Because it's quite different to anything else I've heard. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, it sees eating disorders more about um, eating disordered um, eating rather than disordered thinking. So... Rather than focusing on, on what to eat and how much the person has to eat, it focuses on retraining them to, to eat. So it's basically saying someone with an eating disorder like anorexia has forgotten how to eat and they need to relearn the process again. So they need to learn simple things like you know how to sit at a table, how to eat with other people, how to eat enough, how to eat uh, at a normal rate because what can often happen with anorexia is that someone eats very slowly and they eat very little. So all of those cues that um, you know are just so normal and natural to most of us get, get lost um, with someone with an eating disorder and they need to be relearned. So the focus was um, not so much on what to eat and how much to eat but on how to eat, relearning how to eat. And once we started to focus on that, um, we started to see some real improvements. They really use technology in a clever way, don't they? Especially one that will yeah. appeal to young people. Absolutely. That was another, you know, another thing that appealed to us was that they had this device called a, a mandometer, um, which provided feedback to to the the patient about um, how fast they were eating and how much they were eating. And the idea was to gradually retrain them to to eat more and to eat more quickly. 
and this was all done through this sort of biofeedback um, device. Uh, so there was no more arguing with, with us. <laughs> um, but previously, it had been us, the parents, telling her how much to eat and trying to get her to eat more quickly. But um, with the with the Mandometer, a technological device, um, she wasn't really able to argue with it. <laughs> and they also do things like putting the patients in, in heated rooms. I think cold vein relates to the fact that she was cold <laughs> a lot of the time, felt cold, but in which they felt um, warm, they felt calm, and perhaps reduced that. Um, and we haven't quite talked about this, but she was always exercising. Yeah, a big part of Chloe's um, anorexia was this obsessive exercise um, that, you know, it was a lot of running on the spot, sit-ups. A lot of it took place in private, so we didn't, you know, see most of it. We've only come to really um, understand the extent of it since she's um, since she's recovered. But um, it happened, as I understand it, because when the body becomes extremely malnourished it becomes very cold and so this is essentially an adaptive response to get the the core body temperature up again um, but the warm rooms um, in the clinic in, in Sweden um, basically had the effect of making the patient relax taking away their anxiety and she still um, she still talks about that as being one of the the main things that helped her recover, and she still realizes um, to this day the importance of rest um, and giving your body a chance to you know to recover and to to calm down. And um, she'd lost that connection with those um, parts of herself. If if that makes sense, I think she becomes so hyped up and so. Um, obsessive in her exercise that something drastic needed to to change. How long was it before there was a noticeable change for her, both on getting a, a bit of weight on? We should say she was really about, only about half the, the body weight a 16-year-old yeah. would be expected to, to be, and also um, and emotionally. Um, probably we started to see some real improvements between two and three months. Um I mean, it it wasn't just the weight gain. There had been a bit of weight gain, but it was more changes in terms of behaviour. Um, so we were able to actually go and eat in restaurants and cafes without there being any major dramas. That was something that was just impossible before. And I think um, maybe another month or so after that, she... It was clear that the, the exercise had stopped and she was much more, more rested. And there was actually a day where we were walking somewhere together and she told me I was walking too fast and I had to slow down. So I, that, was, <laughs> <laughs> that was a complete turnaround because it was usually me telling her to slow down. But um, just a change in her, the way she looked as well. I remember towards the very end of our stay, um, in the clinic, we were able to go away for a weekend, and we went um, we went to a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, and the waiter there, um, who was this sort of middle aged um, Italian guy, kept flirting with her and 
calling her Miss Beautiful Eyes. <laughs> and when I looked at her, I could see, look, she actually did look extremely different. Her eyes were the way I remembered them when she was a little girl. They were glowing. They were, were beautiful again. They were full of life. Um, and, of course, when she'd been really sick, her eyes had been sort of, you know, quite dead-looking and quite devoid of expression. So I think that was a big, um, you know, a big sign that, that she was actually herself again. These stories of anorexia and nervosa don't always end happily. It has for Chloe. She's, what, 26 now, and it feels like she's having a great life. She is. Um, yeah, in the years that have passed, she's, you know, she's had many um, adventures. She's travelled overseas. Um, she's volunteered in Nepal and, and Ghana in Africa. Um, she's got a law degree, she's got a really good job now, she's got some wonderful friends, she's got a good relationship um, and she doesn't think at all about food or <laughs> calories. She finds it hard to believe that she was ever you know, as sick as she was and I guess we do, we find it hard to believe now too. Is she happy then that you've written her story in this way? Yeah, yeah, she doesn't... Um, she doesn't want to necessarily become the sort of spokesperson for eating disorder recovery because she's in a very different space now and wants her own life. But she said um, she's happy that I'm telling the story, that anorexia is a terrible disease and that if our story can help other people, then she's very happy about that. Is the mandometer treatment you were talking about available in Australia yet? Because we're talking over a decade ago. Yeah, look, I haven't been in this space for over 10 years, but my understanding is they still have an outpatient clinic in, in Melbourne. It would be terrific if they were able to have inpatient facilities over here because when someone is, is as sick as Chloe was, um, they actually need around-the-clock supervision and treatment Um Otherwise, they're basically at home with their family and uh, it's, it's incredibly difficult for the family to cope. So I'm, to get that intensive treatment, I, I think it's still necessary to go to their clinic in Sweden. Um, Which would be out of the reach of an awful lot of people, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And that's another reason I think, you know, I'd really like to see funding for this treatment and treatments like it in Australia because it, this disorders are incredibly serious and they have an incredibly high mortality rate and they're very, very difficult to treat. So it would be wonderful um, if intensive treatments like mandometer were available to people in Australia. And of course in Sweden, um, for Swedish people, this treatment is free. Mm. That's light years ahead of... I know. Oh, both our countries, really, in this. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. won't be the answer for everybody, but if it's the answer for some, it's it's got to be worth considering, hasn't it? Because there's still a lot of, I mean, there's stigma around anorexia, but it's, it's still hardly understood. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably not as bad now as it was 10 years ago when we were going through this. And I think that um, there's probably more awareness of of what it is and that it is serious, but... I think it, it's it's still very complex. It's difficult to treat. I think it would be great if um, if it was treated as seriously as you know physical illnesses, um, and that um, people were, uh, or particularly families, are given more support. Um, 
when they have someone who's a family member who's so incredibly ill. What advice would you have, Anne, for other parents who may have the same concerns for their children now? I think that the best advice I could give someone would be not to blame themselves, um, but to focus instead on what they can do to to help um, their child and to trust their own instincts as well. If if something doesn't seem to be working, then they know their child better than anyone else. And um, it's probably a good idea to, you know, to look for alternate treatments. Um, and the other advice I'd give is that it's really important to separate the sufferer from the disease. Um, because this is such a terrible disease, sometimes the person can be blamed for for what they're doing, but but actually it's it's not their fault. It's it's out of their control. Mother of four and human rights lawyer and author Anne Tonner. If you're affected by issues we've talked about with Anne, there is a link to the Eating Disorder Advice New Zealand Helpline on our webpage, www.ed.org.nz/getting-help. As I say, that is on the nine to noon webpage. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.